have no hands but yours to tend my sheep. No handkerchief but yours to dry the eyes of those who weep. I have no arms but yours with which to hold the ones grown weary from the struggle and weak from growing Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service. Above all, I'll seek out light, love, and helping hands being shared between our many neighbors on this planet, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. I have no way to open people's eyes Except that you will show them how to trust the inner light My guest today on Spirit in Action is John Lamoureux. John is co-author of a book, Waging Peace, A Study in Biblical Pacifism. He is an evangelical Christian Quaker and spans a lot of worlds. He's just finishing his term as a Republican Party county commissioner, and perhaps he is the only pacifist ever to have been endorsed by the National Rifle Association. John, thanks for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Well, it's an honor to be with you. Really, an honor to be invited. I met you out there in Oregon, and that's where you're talking to me today from. Are you a lifetime Oregon resident? No, I grew up in central California, about 60 miles from San Francisco. Moved up to Oregon in 1969 for my freshman year at the University of Oregon. And religiously, how were you raised? I know you're Quaker now, but what were your roots religiously? My family would be, I would say, marginally Christian. I mean, we would say we were Christians, but we did not attend a church. So there was really no uh, no real faith in our home. In fact, I kind of smile about it. If somebody wanted to take my brother and sister and I to church, they could stop by, pick us up, and we'd go to church. So we ended up at a, quite a few different churches as we were growing up, but no particular denomination. In fact, when I first became a Christian, and I told my mother about that, her first response was, oh, God, not that. And so I kind of smile about that because, she was a bit concerned that I might become too fanatical about it. And does she still feel that way these days? 
she has still maintained her non-Christian roots. And so she's come to accept my belief standards and what I believe in and has admired them from afar, though uh, she has decided not to join any church. I'm asking this, at least in part, because you've gone on to be somewhat of a leader, some of an inspirational force in actually living out visible faith. And so these roots seem important to me. When you say you became a Christian, was this denomination specific? How old were you at the time? How did this happen? Well, it's an interesting story. At least it's interesting to me on how it happened. And Some of the background. In 1968, between my junior and senior years in high school, I had a, a wonderful opportunity to travel through Europe for three months. And it was an exciting time. 1968 was a year, but it was also a very turbulent time. Just days before I left, Bobby Kennedy was killed in California. Martin Luther King was killed that prior April. Of course, the Vietnam War was raging. I was in Paris when the communist students took over the Sorbonne and all the mass transit was shut down. I was in the Soviet Union when they invaded Czechoslovakia. It was just a traumatic, dramatic uh, summer of seeing events, and that was the first start of my Christianity. By that, what I mean is I did not look at becoming a Christian then, but what I noticed was as I was traveling through Europe and seeing all the different beliefs that various people had in the different nations I went to, and it was 17 countries that I visited, was that I started to think, you know, if I was born in this country, I'd probably be very nationalistic and very supportive of that country, and if these people were born in our country, they'd probably be pretty pro-American. When I was in the Soviet Union, that really struck home. I was very impressed with the Soviet people, but realized the people I was traveling with had a real dislike for the Soviet people, and the Soviet people had a real dislike for the American people. I was only 17, but I thought, you know, if I was born in Russia with their press, I'd probably be a proud Russian. And if these Russians were born in America, I have a feeling they would, you know, with the American press, they'd probably be proud Americans. And I thought that there had to be something, somewhere, somehow, that would want to take away the hatred I was feeling between the two cultures, because we were at the height of the Cold War then. And I just thought there had to be something that would take this hate away, that would cause people not to want to hate someone just because of place of birth and where they grew up. I had no clue that could be Christianity, because every Christian I knew at that time supported what I viewed as kind of the war mentality that was so prevalent. And when I spoke to Christians about it, that was the attitude I received. Well, it was about five years later, I was visiting a friend, ended up picking up a New Testament, reading the first letter of John, and realized, oh my goodness, this is what I've been seeking. And so it was five years after the summer of 1968 that I became a Christian and started jumping in to the Bible quite extensively. When you say you became a Christian, was this kind of a gradual intellectual realization, or was it kind of the dramatic born-again Christian type experience? No, yeah, I would say more of the born-again. It was very dramatic in the sense that my heart literally leapt when I read First John. It, I had pretty much dismissed the Bible and Christianity, and then reading the Word, it became dramatically obvious that this is what I had been seeking. When you say that you started studying the Bible, do you mean that you took some kind of formal study course or went to seminary or something? Well, on my own. What I found at first is that I would read it, I would have questions, I would go to somebody and ask them to help me with my questions, and then I would receive an answer back. Most of the time I would receive an answer back that would tell me part of the story but not all of the story. 
and you get that with a lot of different denominations, especially questions about peace and justice. And so what I did for a year is I decided not to read anything other than the Bible, pray about what I was reading, and then supplement it with as much history that I could find on the early church. In other words, trying to find the setting in life in which the teachings occurred, to try to get away from the filter of 2,000 years of society interpreting different verses. I tried to go back to the very beginning and look at it historically, uh, what the intentions were when the words were first spoken. And then after a year, then I went out and started having more conversations with other people and bringing people in. But what I found, and this is something that missionaries often talk about when they go overseas and go to a culture, that the culture they go to typically tries to meld the beliefs of the culture with the new Christianity that's brought to them. And what I found was is that throughout society, and some people have written about it, is our cultures try to blend what we have as a pagan society to meld it and mash it and converge it with the Christian belief, and you get kind of a mixed pot that way. And so what I was trying to do is to try to find the historical Jesus, so to speak, and not so much the contemporary Jesus. The contemporary Jesus, does that bear any resemblance to the living Christ? No, what I would say when I refer to it is, for example, if you take the story of the Good Samaritan, to most people today you hear the story of the Good Samaritan and you just instantly think of somebody who does good and, and that helps someone. If you put it in a historical context to realize that Jesus as a Jewish teacher was talking about a Samaritan who was absolutely hated by the Jewish people and was saying that a Jewish person was waylaid on a trip and people of his faith ignored him and yet a Samaritan came by and helped him. Today in our society that would be similar to us as a Christian giving a parable of the good Muslim. Uh, the Christians let the guy on the roadside and didn't help, but the Muslim came by and helped him. It was such a radical teaching when Jesus said, go and do likewise. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then how do I do it? Well, here's a parable of good Samaritan. Love everybody. When you put it in the historical context, it really comes to life. Through the eyes of our society, I think the word is diluted quite a bit. So you did some study on your own for an extended period. And then did you go try and find out some group that matched what you believed, what insights you had had? Well, not really. What was interesting is I was convinced that the way of peace was the way that Jesus taught. Now, I had no clue how the early church felt about it. I had no clue how it was accepted for the first 300 years of Christianity. All that I knew was that every Christian that I knew said that I was wrong and I was interpreting the Bible wrong. And yet the more that I read, the more I saw Jesus' teaching and how he lived and what the apostles taught and how they lived, it, it was obvious that they taught peace. Love your neighbor, love your enemy, do good to those who persecute you, feed those who persecute you. When you look at the entirety of it, it was overwhelming. And so I, at one point, knew of no other Christian who held similar beliefs. None. And so it was kind of lonely, to say the least. I took a couple years off from school, came back to the University of Oregon in 1973, and just literally, as I went up to finish my senior year there, just prayed, Lord, let me find people I can fellowship with. Literally, the day after I prayed that, I got lost. I was trying to find my way to a farmhouse I had rented, stumbled upon the French church, and met Don Lamb, who was the pastor of Eugene French Church. It was a Wednesday morning that I went by. He invited me to a Wednesday night service. I went, and it was that night that I met my friend Ralph Beebe, who I co-authored Waging Peace with. I'm assuming that in the meantime, you had been checking out other places, other churches, other fellowships. 
Actually, there wasn't much time in between, because in 68 is when I knew there had to be something out there. It was five years later that I started reading the New Testament. So it was within the first year that I then met Ralph. I had attended churches, but none of them as far as a membership basis. I visited quite a few different churches, actually. That was when I was in California, but then when I moved back to Oregon, that's when I met with the friends and then became part of their church. And what was it that was so different about your arrival there at the Eugene Friends Church? Well, for the first time in my life, I met other Christians who shared a similar belief on peace, that the teachings of Jesus truly were intended for us to live our lives nonviolently. So that was the biggest difference, the biggest similarity. The other similarity was that we were Eugene Friends Church and myself, we were evangelical Christians. And so for me, it was a natural fit to blend with the Evangelical Friends Church in Eugene. Well, let's start talking a bit about your book, Waging Peace, A Study in Biblical Pacifism. I've done some search for quite a time to find good study guides about war and peace in the Bible and without finding much in the way of good resources. Would you describe how your book came about? Well, sure. After I graduated from the University of Oregon, my friend Ralph Beebe had just received a professorship at George Fox University, then known as George Fox College. That was in Newburgh, Oregon, about 100 miles from Eugene, where the University of Oregon is. He invited me to move up to Newburgh. I followed him, and I was just actually doing a Bible study because I, too, had trouble finding books that really highlighted the passages and the peace teachings. And so what I was doing is just simply another one of my little Bible studies where I was putting the verses down together, and I started correlating them in the following manner, which is in the back of the book, and that is what Jesus said could happen to his disciples, what happened to his disciples, you know, what the apostles said could happen to believers, how Jesus and the apostles said to respond to them, and they just started lining it out, and Ralph came up and looked at what I was doing, and he said, John, I think we should put this into a book. And I laughed at him because I could just remember all the English teachers who used to bleed red on my papers and said, Ralph, I'm not sure anyone would buy it. And he said, no, I really think we need to do this. He talked to the publishers at Barclay Press, which is a Quaker press. They came back and asked if we would do it, and so we created the little booklet called Waging Peace. And how did that go? You know, I've never published a book. Did you just front some money and have them make a thousand copies and then hand them out to your best friends? How did that process go? Well, what happened, it was real interesting. Both Ralph and I felt very strongly that we wanted no financial reward if they sold copies. So we told the press, you know, if you publish it, we really don't want anything in return. Just please keep the cost low. So they did. And one of the things, though, in the first editions, I was a little disappointed they took it out because we really wanted to see this message out. In the first editions, what they had in it, and I insisted it be put in, is that any part of this book may be reproduced without permission, which is usually just the opposite of what you find in most books. And they changed it at first to any part of the book may be reproduced without permission as long as it's not resold, but they've eventually taken it out. I've tried to get them to put it back in, but to our surprise, it was a small printing at first. If I remember right, it was about 1,000 copies. might have been 1,500, but since then it's been reprinted, I believe now, approximately 25 times. It keeps going. So we're just very happy, very thankful that there has been interest in it. Have you ever kicked yourself and said, hey, if I had five cents for every copy that's sold, I could put my son through college now? Oh, no, not once, not once. 
We really believe that the message is so important. And when you look at this world and the violence you see on a local to a state to a national to a world level, I think the more people that can access it and then go back to the Bible, and we want people to test it with the Bible, to go back and pray about it, read about it, to see that there is a different way than the way of war. And it was presented to us 2,000 years ago, and it's still valid today. We do not regret for one moment that we've never received any funds for it. One of the points that you make in the book is that the early church was clearly pacifist. Could you just outline what you say about that in the book? Well, sure. That's the second chapter of the book. And one of the things, when I became an early Christian, you know, again, I, I tried to find what the setting and life was of Jesus' teachings. Then the next situation I put myself in was to do as much research that I could find on the early church. And what's amazing with the early church, and this is what we explain in the second chapter, is if you look at the early church, there is a lot of division. There's a lot of teachings, false teachings, you know, people arguing with each other, even among the church. But one of the things that they are firm about is the message of peace. And for the first 300 years, there exists no writing from anywhere that suggests that Christians could be violent for any reason. And that's an amazing history when you think for 300 years that this group of people who were often severely persecuted led a life of peace, even so much so that the pagans recognized it. You know, you had one emperor saying, you know, these Christians will be no benefit to us. They won't even defend themselves, much less the emperor, to which one of the Christian leaders replies back, no, with our prayers, we'll do more good for you than your armies. And so we wanted to highlight that, that this belief that we talk about, we find in the teachings of Christ, in the teachings of the apostles, and also in the teachings of the early church for the first 300 years. And why does it stop after 300 years? When you look at it, you have now... Which at the time, some Christians thought it was great. You have the Emperor Constantine becoming a Christian. But at that moment in time, you went from the church being persecuted and growing to the church now becoming the official religion. And if you're not a Christian, now you might face persecution. So the Christians now become the persecutors. And it was almost as if you opened the doors for masses of non-committed people, which we believe was just the dilution of the church and the dilution of the Christian message. And is that the state that we still find ourselves in today? Well, yes. I mean, I think if you look at my situation and growing up, I'm in a Christian home, but it's a Christian home that does not have Christ. That makes no sense. But yet that's how we find much of the Christian world today. You have millions and millions of people identifying themselves as Christians, yet I would guess the majority of them rarely read the Bible or try to understand the teachings that occurred in the Bible or try to lead truly spiritual lives. One of the thoughts I've had, or maybe one of the feelings I've had, is that a lot of people are driven away from Christianity because people who are calling themselves Christians are not very Christ-like, are not very Christ-following. Did you have that experience growing up, or didn't that hit you at all? Well, it didn't hit me so much. I mean, because as I grew up, I'm growing up as, I'm assuming I'm a Christian, because my family says we're Christians. If you took a survey, what faith are you? You'd put yourself down as Christians. Well, do you attend church? No. Do you read the Bible? No. Do you pray? No. I mean, you answer no to all of them, but yet you're still saying, you know, oh, I'm a Christian. You know, I just didn't really even think about Christians much because they were so blended into the world, there was no difference. I mean, if I looked at somebody that was totally pagan, it looked like what I was growing up in. So the pagans and the Christians all, to me, for the early part of my life, looked very similar. 
I didn't really look at them in the sense that, you know, I'm disappointed in how they're acting because I looked at the way I was acting. You know, I was probably somebody, if they looked at me and how I was living, say, oh, my goodness, if he calls himself a Christian, that's an interesting lifestyle. I've talked to quite a few people, people who take the Bible seriously, and they tell me that the Bible really isn't pro-peace when you look at it as a whole. In particular, they say there's a lot of passages of the Old Testament which clearly indicate that God is not a peaceful God, that God is not anti-war. God tells Moses, for example, go kill 3,000 people. God tells the Israelites, go into Canaan and wipe out every man, woman, child, and beast of theirs. And so they say, you know, God is not pro-peace. How do you deal with that when you're talking to Christians? Well, I don't have much difficulty with that at all. And, and the reason being, the most important thing that we can do as Christians is to follow Christ. And whatever Christ is telling us, what God is telling us to do in this moment is that is what we need to follow. And I really enjoy speaking. You know, I'm an evangelical Christian, so most of the time I'm meeting with evangelical Christians. I realize I'm in a minority with my peace beliefs, but I'm not afraid to share them. And I bring them to them, not as a bat over the head, because that seems somewhat <laughs> hypocritical. But what I try to do is bring it to them to get them to sit down and to look into an examine. And I am convinced that if people open up their hearts, go into the Bible and start reading it and just praying about it, that they will come to the conclusion that the way of peace is what Jesus has taught. I'm often asked about the Old Testament. But if you look at the Old Testament, you go from the very beginning to the very end. You don't have a life for a life and an eye for an eye. You know, Cain kills Abel. There's no death penalty at that time. In fact, it's just the opposite. And You know, you have the word from the Lord that if anybody hurts Cain, you know, a worse fate is going to happen to them than what happened to Cain. You know, you have the death penalty coming after, you know, the flood. But why did you have the flood? If you go back and read the scripture, one of the saddest verses, you know, in Genesis... Because the world was filled with violence, and the Lord was grieved in his heart that he had ever created man. And then you have the flood, and now you have Noah coming off the ark with the word, whoever sheds blood shall have his blood shed. And it's God working with people. But then you have Jesus coming, and you have the teachings of Jesus, which were just not the opposite of what was taught in the Old Testament, but the continuation of what was taught in the Old Testament. And Jesus says, you know, he talks about, in the old, it was an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Well, the next verse is a life for a life. And he says, I say to you, no more. There was no doubt that the question you posed to me was a question that was posed to Jesus. People knew he taught peace. They knew that he would not be killing or advocating the killing of the people around him. And that's why when you bring and you look in the Gospel of John in, in chapter 8 with the adulterous woman, they bring him to him to test him. Well, what's the test? They knew that Jesus was not going to condemn this person, yet the Old Testament law said, you know, you have to kill somebody like this. And so when you look at it, I have no doubt that Jesus calls us into the perfection before the fall and to live a life before the fall. And so if God was calling me to war today, I would go to war. But God's calling me to peace today. And that's what we need to follow. We can't say that because God called somebody else to war in a past time that that's our calling today. We briefly touch on it in the book in Numbers when you have the people being called into the promised land and they come back with the report that it's filled with the land of giants and God is saying, go, I want you to have this land. And the people refuse to go. They're too scared of the giants. 
And then God says, okay, you shall never have. And then they realize what they've done wrong, and they try to go against God's will, and they're destroyed. The important part is that you have to follow God's will. If God's calling you to war and you don't go, you sin. And if God's calling you to peace and you don't go, you're sinning just as much. And today, when you look at the New Testament and the teachings of Christ, God has called us to peace, and we clearly need to follow. See the plane in the distance See the flame in the sky See the young ones running for cover The old ones wondering why They tell us that the world is a dangerous place We live in a terrible time But in Hiroshima, New York or in Baghdad It's the innocent to die for the crime Not in my name Not in my name Not in my name Not in my name Witnesses watch through the window Their hearts locked in horror and pain That the man lying strapped to a gurney As the poison is pumped through his veins And I'm wondering who are the prisoners Who holds the lock and the key Who has the power over life, over death? When will we finally be free? Not in my name. 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 Not in my name.
That was John McCutcheon and his song, Not In My Name. You're listening to an interview with John Lamerell, an evangelical Christian Quaker, a member of Northwest Yearly Meeting, and co-author of the book, Waging Peace, A Study in Biblical Pacifism, now in its 25th printing. You have a chapter in the book where you deal with the problem verses of the Bible, verses that Christians frequently have used to justify why it was okay to be violent. Things like Jesus says he comes not to bring peace but a sword, that Jesus goes into the temple and he's using violence there, that Jesus or Paul say that we should obey the government. Could you give me an overview why these verses don't mean that it's okay for Christians to use violence. Well, when you look at Romans 13, and that's the part where Paul talks about the the government does not bear the sword in vain, there's two things that you have to understand with it. One, you have to look at the setting of life in which it occurred. When Paul is referring to that government, you have to understand that it's a pagan government. And to the early church, it made perfect sense for the pagans to use violence in the sense that the early Christians believed that Jesus was the way and the path, and that the pagans really didn't have salvation within them. And so it made sense, if, you know, if a pagan was going to lose his life, well, he better defend his life, because he doesn't have anything else to live for. When Paul writes Romans 13, of course, we look at it as, we have it as different chapters, and we have the various chapters. The early writings didn't have the chapters in it. That's something that we've inserted, you know, over time. But if you look at the end of chapter 13, and you look at the end of chapter 12, then you get a whole different light on what Paul's talking about. Now, he fully understands that the Romans he's talking about and the Roman government, the Christians at that time, could never participate with that government. The reason being, there's no possibility that they would view Caesar as Lord, which was part of the life of being in the Roman army. And if you look at the end of Romans 12, and I just turn to it, Paul writes, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave the way open for God's wrath, for his written vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And then he writes, But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not let yourself be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. And then he writes the very next verse, on chapter 13, verse 1, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. And he's talking about the possibility of Christians being persecuted. And he's saying, as Jesus said, love your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you. He's saying the same thing that Jesus taught. And he's saying to do it in response to the government, even governments that might not be the best. And then if you look at the end of chapter 13, he again talking about how to live our lives and, and the love in verse 8 of 13. Keep out of debt and owe man anything except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law, meeting all the requirements. And so for someone to take the end of 12 and the end of 13 and to say that Paul is saying now for Christians to pick up the sword and go to war, it's wrong. The early church did not interpret it that way. They did not follow it that way. And to say now 2,000 years later, that's what we must do. The part with Jesus in the temple, most scholars agree that what he did is he went in to chase animals out of the temple. He did knock over tables. But again with the adulterous woman, Jesus said, the person who's not sinned, throw the first stone. There was one person there that could have thrown the first stone. He chose not to. The sword, Jesus says, who doesn't have a sword, get one. The apostles reply back, we have two. And if you look at the literal translation, Jesus says, enough of this. Almost as to say, you don't understand what I'm talking about. You know, he says, that's enough. I mean, obviously he's not saying, you know, we have two swords, go ahead and 
now go to war. As an early church writer wrote, you know, when Jesus disarmed Peter, he disarmed all of us. Peter took one of the swords and used it, and Jesus severely rebuked him and said, Get behind me, Satan. I think the most important part of that message of what Jesus did with Peter when Peter did use the sword is simply when he healed the person who was taking him to the cross. We never know if that person became a Christian. We have to wonder what was going through that man's mind as he is there to take somebody to torture. He is attacked, he is cut, and the person he is taking to be tortured now heals him. We never know if he became a Christian. We can only wonder what must have gone through his mind. And we have a similar situation with Paul and Silas in the book of Acts where they're arrested for doing nothing wrong, but they're beaten with rods, they're thrown into a dungeon, they're chained. And when you look at that, when you're beaten with rods, that's not something that is painless, it is painful. Dungeons and prisons, you know, we, we tend to think of them in today's society, which aren't very good. But back then, you don't have restrooms. You don't have, can I have a Band-Aid or some ointment for my wounds? You're sitting there in pain, you're chained, and what happens? Well, they're doing just as Jesus taught. They're singing psalms, they're giving praises, even though they're being punished by the government for doing nothing wrong. Exactly as Jesus taught, exactly as Paul taught in Romans 13. And then when the earthquake happens and they're freed from the chains, they're in the shadows, the jailer thinks they've gone, he's about to commit suicide. Now I would submit that most of us would do one or two things in the same situation. We would see the jailer, we would jump him, say the Lord wanted us to kill him so we could get out, or we would stand in the shadows, let the guy commit suicide, and then escape saying we had nothing to do with his shed blood. Paul and Silas do something different. They see a person, they want to witness to him, and they say, don't harm yourselves, we're right here. They had no clue what this guy was going to do with him. He might say, you try to escape, you're going to be punished more. But that person, through the witness of Paul and Silas, became a member of the church, as did his family that evening. And that is part of this exciting living witness of living a nonviolent life. You might get beat up. You might die. That's not the point. Our time on earth is short. It's following the will of God is the most important thing we can do. What you say is persuasive to me, but then again, I'm a Quaker like you, even though I'm part of this very different branch of the Quaker society. What I just do not understand is, given the very clear message in the Bible, how can the mass of Christianity have not received this message, have forgotten it? It's as if there is this gaping hole in the Bible that they're just somehow not seeing. Well, it is. And when you look at the totality of the New Testament, and you go through all the teachings, how people cannot accept this, cannot see this, it is absolutely amazing. But yet, when you go to most of your mainstream churches, you know, this is the greatest story never told. How many times have you ever been in a church where somebody has given a sermon on love your enemies, uh, do good to those who persecute you? And instead, we receive just the opposite. And what I believe we've done, you know, and Schweitzer wrote a book on it, and he called it In Search of the Historical Jesus, is that every society recreates Jesus in their own image. We are, I think, by nature, sometimes a violent people, and we've recreated Jesus in that image. I, too, am shocked at how little acceptance this has. I am shocked at how few people have a similar belief, but yet I am never amazed that when you sit down with people, 
and you find a Christian who is willing to read the Bible, to examine the history of the early church, and to pray about it, that you see amazing conversions taking place. Because it becomes so blatantly obvious that this is what was taught, and this is what was led, and this is how we need to respond as well. The other thing I find, you know, about a year ago I went down to Ecuador and just had an absolutely wonderful time. The only problem I had is I don't speak Spanish. And that made things a little bit difficult because everybody there, everybody there spoke Spanish and I spoke English. Well, I'm convinced that most of us don't speak the Word of God or don't arm ourselves with the weapons of God. If I spent time learning Spanish, I would have had a much better time down there. I think if most Christians... Because the questions I get asked, well, what happens if I get attacked? I'm going to need to use a gun. They put all their faith and the worldly possessions around them to protect them. They don't look at the Bible to find the teachings for protection that are within it when you look at the armor of God, their prayer life. And so when they're in a time of emergency, it's, it's similar to me in Ecuador. I didn't speak Spanish, so I'm trying to pull out a phrase out of a book, and I'm mispronouncing everything. Most of the Christians today spend very little time understanding the armor of God and the protection that God can give us. And so they don't want to use it. They don't know how to use it, and they don't want to trust it. Instead, they'll just trust that which is around them. You know, I, I think that's part of our downfall, is that we have so much, we just don't want to give it up. And the thought that somebody might take it from us leads us into a belief system where we must do everything we can to protect it. When you look at it, what are we protecting? It's mostly material things. It's things that are short-term. It's not things that I really believe are meaningful for eternity. You know, you speak very persuasively and with such reflected authority. From a lot of people's point of view, that might make you good material for being a pastor of a church. Is this an area that you've pursued? Did you do some kind of religious training to be able to give a good sermon and to speak persuasively on the Bible? Do you have some kind of a degree in that direction? My graduate degree is from a Mennonite seminary, which was a Master of Arts in Peace Study. But I've never thought about becoming part of what would be normally called a pastoral ministry. I've not felt called in that direction. Where I have felt called is to the testimony of peace. It's something that I take wherever I go. I'm not embarrassed about it. I'm not ashamed about it. I'm not shy about it. If you saw my friends and you saw the lifestyles that my friends lead, some of my friends are in the military. They're all over but yet I take my message of peace to them and I'm not bashful about it, there's a respect that we have with each other. They know I'm trying to convert them, but they have no doubt about it. I'll just keep bringing the verses to them, I'll keep bringing the lifestyle to them, and I'll keep praying that they will examine it as well. But then I leave it up to them to make the decision. Sometimes it takes just weeks, sometimes it takes years. One of my closest friends, I can remember almost 20 years ago when I moved to the community I'm now living in. I brought him a copy of Waging Peace. We talked about it. and He was an evangelical Christian, but definitely not on the peace side. And he looked at me like I was absolutely crazy. And just within the last year, at a little conservative church that he goes to in a neighboring community, I went out to visit him, and I was at the church with him. And, of course, the height of the Iraqi war is going on. He even had a son that was serving in Iraq at the time. And they're praying for our country, they're praying for the soldiers. And this man stood up and said, we also have to pray for our enemies in Iraq as well. Now, that is 
exciting. This is a man who has a son over there, but yet he's sincere, he's looking at the gospel, and the Lord is leading him, and he has an amazing witness now, an absolutely amazing witness. And I think as Christians, that's what we need to do, is to continually bring this before people and give them the opportunity to see it being lived, but also then to research it for themselves and to test it out and to trust it into their hearts. John, I think I want to do a little bit more to draw out the essentials of your faith. Now again, you're part of this branch of Quakerism known as Evangelical Friends, whereas I'm associated with this large group of Quakers known as Friends General Conference, sometimes referred to as Liberal Friends. And there's the question where you and I and everybody stands with regard to this just generic class maybe called evangelical Christians. So what are the essentials of what you believe and what you think makes you similar to or different than evangelical Christians or maybe these liberal Quakers? What's your understanding of what defines you and makes you part of the Evangelical Friends Church? For me, when I became a Christian, I really had no concept of Quakers. If you said, what's the difference between a Quaker and a friend? Well, a friend's somebody that lives down the street. You know, I had no knowledge of Quakers or the Society of Friends. When I met the Friends Church in Eugene, which was evangelical, one of the first things I ended up doing was getting a copy of the journal of George Fox and reading about Fox, and I found incredible similarity between what I was going through and what Fox wrote about. And I looked at the power of his writings and the power of his teachings, especially when he comes to this country, and visits with William Penn, but the way he refers to Native Americans as the noble kings and queens and princes and princesses of a gentle spirit, which is quite a bit different than what you find for most Christian writings of the time who viewed the Native Americans as the brutal savage. And so, you know, my understanding, I have been with both the silent meeting friends, the evangelical friends, I have friends in both circles. I see our common bound more times than not is the call to peace. A lot of times with evangelical friends, I haven't found that call to peace to be very strong. And so when I was with the evangelical friends, that was something I felt. I was always encouraging them to accept that which they came from. There is a lot of non-belief in that area, and I'm happy to say, at least in the Northwest, we're seeing now a, a bigger drive to bring people into the life of peace. I saw with the non-evangelical friends a much greater witness in peace not as much of the evangelical fervor that I have with the evangelical friends, but I also see non-evangelical friends being called to a ministry, and I've learned to accept other ministries and to be supportive of them, at the same time being willing to share my belief and my belief system with them. Well, if it's okay with you, John, I'd like to ask you a little bit more about your life. What do you do for a living, and how do you earn your daily bread? Well, that's when I'll probably lose a lot of credibility with your audience. I am a county commissioner, which is an elected official. Though I did lose my bid for re-election, I am a Republican, ran for re-election, lost by 46 votes in a Republican primary. And one of the issues that was brought up, and probably was the deciding thing, was that people were bringing up waging peace and that I was a pacifist, and how could I? And with some interest that I saw that becoming an issue in this day and age, because a county commissioner really has little to do with armies, but it was something that I found very fascinating, that that was an issue that was brought up. What was the attack on you? Was it that you were not patriotic? 
Oh, yes. If you're a pacifist and a Christian pacifist, that is the attack that will be leveled on you, that you cannot be patriotic. My response, you know, is similar to Tertullian's, is that, no, I think with my prayers I can do more for you than you can with your armies. And there's a certain irony, though, is I had a lot of support from military. We have a National Guard unit that went to Iraq, and I had a lot of strong support within that group. Where I did lose some support was with a lot of World War II veterans. It was an interesting phenomenon watching it, but it's something that over the years that I've just grown to be accustomed to. If you stand up for peace, you will be attacked. There is no doubt about it. But you have to take an attitude of, who cares? <laughs> you know, I mean, let people attack. You just have to smile and respond in love and take the message of Christ too. One more thing about your election. I believe you were endorsed by the NRA. Why? I know, that's one I believe, I'm not certain, but I believe I'm the first pacifist ever endorsed by the NRA. And part of that was simply a local individual had a hunting bill that he was trying to promote and he was getting no traction with. And he came to me, asked me about it. I said I'd be glad to help him. I thought it was a, a great bill that would promote wildlife habitat, which that's the whole purpose of it, is promoting uh, increased habitat, better habitat. You know, I went to bat for him. We did a lot of trips together in promoting it. He's a good member of the NRA and actually high standing with them. And he was the one that recommended that they endorse me. They realized that while I'm a pacifist, I'm not anti-hunting and I'm not anti-gun ownership. And so I was really honored when I had their support. Now, one of the things that I found interesting, though, is that when the topic was made that I'm a pacifist and how dare they endorse a pacifist, they stood behind me. I was very proud of them for that. There's a lot of people that won't stand behind you in tough times, and it would have been very easy for them to disassociate themselves. But they said, no, this guy stood up for a good hunting bill. We're going to stand up behind him. So it's one of the more interesting endorsements I've ever had, but it was one that I truly can say that I was honored to receive. So now that you didn't get reelected, what are you going to do for livelihood, for income? It's interesting you say that because I honestly don't know at this time. When I graduated from the University of Oregon, I was trying to decide where I wanted to go and what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to serve God, but the question was how. Well, I did a lot of praying. I did a lot of thinking, and the message kept coming to me. It's out of a verse in James. What is true religion? It's taking care of widows and orphans. Well, through that, I kept thinking, you know, what am I being told here? Where am I being led? I ended up applying to be a nurse's aide at a nursing home back in 1975, which didn't make a lot of sense for a college graduate because nursing home aides were actually paid below minimum wage. We were federally exempted from minimum wage. And so to have a college graduate walking into a field that was normally not male-dominated and paid below minimum wage, people thought I was absolutely crazy. But I learned so much at that nursing home, both about serving, both about faith. We ended up having more Bible studies in that nursing home. Things just changed, and I ended up spending five years there working with the frail elderly and had an incredible time. So now I'm trying to put myself back in the same situation and not saying, well, Lord, I, I know you must have a good high-paying job for me out there that you want me to be super rich. I'm just saying, Lord, where do you want me to go now? I'm still waiting upon that. I'm not quite sure what it's going to be, but more and more I feel the leading that I need to take the message of peace to more people. And what form that will take, I'm not sure, but right now that's where I feel like I'm being called. Have you authored anything else besides the book, 
waging peace? No, outside of just a few articles. Ralph and I did an article for an Evangelical Friends magazine. That article relates to the subject of going back in time to the stoning of Stephen. The overseer of it was uh, who became our Apostle Paul. And in our short story, as, as Peter takes the sword, comes out and kills Paul for killing Stephen, who had done nothing wrong. And you know, our message was, you never know who's going to become a Christian and who might accept the faith. And that's part of the reason why we need to become peace people. Done a few things like that. Also, a couple smaller things with friends back in Philadelphia. One was a small book, a handbook on military taxes and conscience, where Ralph and I wrote a chapter on it. About your contribution to the handbook on military taxes and conscience, what kind of contribution did you have for that? What was the substance of what you had to contribute to that? And is this something that actually interests you or that you practice? When Ralph first asked me to, he was the one who called me. He had been approached by uh, Lyndon Coffin, who was the editor of this book. And he asked me, he said, John, would you you know, be interested in doing this? And I said, well, Ralph, yeah, I'd be interested in taking a look at it. But I said, I'm not sure Ralph was a vortex resistor. I was not. So I said, I'm not sure we're going to come out in the same belief, but let's see what we come up with. As I did more research on it, one of the things that I found, because most of the time when you look at the passage for paying taxes about render to Caesar, you know, what is Caesar's? And we have this as part of the book, is that clearly, when you look at it, Jesus' intention, when he made that comment on tribute, was that this was not to become part of a new legal text. But he clearly intended his words to become part of a new living text, whose meaning is fully revealed by the living, ever-present Holy Spirit. And I think that is something that we need to examine. The other issues within that, and this is another part of it, when you look at war tax resistance and a lot of other issues, I think back to John Woolman, who was one of the Quakers primarily responsible for leading Quakers against the slavery movement. He wrote that those of us who say we're against slavery should look and examine our possessions to see if the seeds of slavery are contained within. And if so quit obtaining them. And I think for a lot of us, too, I think the same way when we look at our lifestyles and, and living a consistent life, we need to really look at our possessions and see if the seeds of war are contained within them and try to do with as little of them as possible. And that goes from all sorts of things, from living a life that doesn't use a lot of resources. You know, if we say we're concerned about what's happening in Iraq because we're only after there for oil, but we're driving an SUV and using a lot of oil... I think we need to be really consistent in all these areas. You know, when you talk about peace and you talk about mindfulness about resources, you don't really sound very much like at least the stereotype of a Republican. A lot of people wonder, why in the world are you with a Republican political party? And in Oregon, we're a little bit differently. And in Oregon, we've had some wonderful people who have served us. One was Senator Mark Hatfield who was a Republican pro-life, anti-war senator. One of the things that's interesting is I am a pro-life, pro-peace person, and I'm mostly a Republican in the sense that it was difficult for me to have a pro-life belief with the Democrats. I'd see some changes, especially with Jim Wallace and Sojourners Magazine, but that was primarily the main reason I joined the political party, but I think more and more that political parties really don't mean much. I think it's really just how we live our lives that's the most important thing. Most of the Christians I know uh, who are pro-life are upset with me because of my peace beliefs. Most of the Christians I know who are peace people are usually pro-choice, I'm pro-life. And I keep telling them, look, I'm the only consistent one. I would just like to have no killing anywhere. 
I don't suppose that your abhorrence of killing extends all the way to being a vegetarian. No, I, what I look at that is I'm not a vegetarian. One of the interesting verses of Jesus is when he's talking about John the Baptist, who apparently was a vegetarian and did not drink strong drink. There's one part where Jesus says, John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking, and you said he was possessed. And, of course, we know he ate something, he drank something, but you know it's believed that's a reference that he was a vegetarian and that he didn't drink alcoholic beverages. Then Jesus says, I came both eating and drinking, which they believe is a reference that he ate meat and he drank alcoholic beverages. And you say, I'm a drunken and glutton. And what he says is, no matter how we present the gospel to you, you're going to reject it. The part that I find interesting is that Jesus supported John and John supported Jesus, and that both lifestyles were very acceptable in the promotion of the gospel. And so I have a lot of friends who are uh, vegetarians, vegans, and I'm always trying to challenge them. One of the things I always like to ask my friends who are vegans because most of my friends who are vegans are pro-choice. And I always say, so the chicken egg is sacred, but the human egg is not. And typically they've never thought about it that way. And so it gives them some pause for thought. That's really powerful to ask people to look at the consistency of their beliefs and their actions. I guess there's one more thing I should ask you about, and that is if some of our listeners are interested in getting your book, Waging Peace, the book that you and Ralph Beebe co-wrote, how would they go about doing that? They can go online to Barclay Press, and that is the best place to get it. Barclay Press is just B-A-R-C-L-A-Y Press. If you do an Internet search, it will come right up, and you can order directly from the publisher. And if people wanted to learn more about Evangelical Friends, is there a good website for them to look at? I would encourage them to go to Barclay Press, which has links. You know, I'm a member of the Northwest Evangelical Friends Meeting. If you do an Internet search on Northwest Yearly Meeting, you will come up with various websites from various churches as well as the Yearly Meeting. And then also, if anybody is interested in contacting me directly, I welcome that as well. My email address is colcane one which is C-O-L-E-K-A-N-E with the numeral one at yahoo.com. Those are the middle names of my two sons, Garen and Kyson, so colcane1 at yahoo.com. And I would enjoy anybody, whether they are in favor of what I speak about or against it, I would love to have the dialogue. I better let you head back to work now. John, I want to thank you for sticking up your head, taking some chances of flack, and you know, going beyond the comfort zone, speaking to a population who maybe haven't heard this message and are really being called to greater faithfulness because of your work. When you believe in something in your heart, you've got to take it forward. And this is something that I believe in my heart. We find ourselves in a world of so much violence. The message needs to be heard and spoken more than ever. Thanks for doing that. Well, thanks for inviting me. I really enjoyed it.
was We Are One in the Spirit, a contemporary worship song. Earlier you heard John McCutcheon singing Not in My Name. You've been listening to a Spirit in Action interview with John Lamoureux, an evangelical Christian Quaker and co-author of the book Waging Peace, A Study in Biblical Pacifism. You can hear this program again via my website, northernspiritradio.org, and you can find other programs and links and information on that site as well. The theme music for Spirit in Action is I Have No Hands But Yours by Carol Johnson. Thank you for listening. I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. You can email me at helpsmeet at usa.net. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. I have no higher call for you than to love and serve your neighbor in joy and selflessness. To love and serve your neighbor in joy and selflessness.